Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The U.S. is armoring Ukraine with more American ammo and rocket launchers. The lead starts right now. Stocking up ahead of a likely Russian spring offensive, the U.S. deploys another $400 million in military aid to Ukraine. Can President Biden secure even more as Russians encircle the strategic town of Bakhmut? Plus, from prominent attorney to convict, the swift prison sentence today for Alec Murdoch after a jury took only a few hours to find him guilty of killing his wife and son. And drag shows shut down. Tennessee becomes the first in the nation to put new restrictions on the performances. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown and for Jake Tapper today. We start today with our health lead. Moments ago, the White House announced a lesion removed from President Biden's chest last month was a common type of skin cancer. CNN's Phil Maddenly joins us now from the White House. So, Phil, tell us more about this diagnosis. Yeah, Pamela, that lesion was, was removed during the president's annual physical last month at Walter Reed. And we now have the results uh, of what that lesion actually presented. And as you noted, it presented uh, a form of skin cancer, basal cell carcinoma, uh, which they say, or at least according to the president's doctor, was removed. All cancerous tissue was successfully removed, according to Dr. Kevin O'Connor. No further treatment is necessary in what is a rather common skin cancer and one that doesn't spread or metastasize. Uh, however, the president will continue to uh, go uh, undergo dermatolo- dermatological surveillance over the course of the coming months and years. But at this point in time, according to Dr. O'Connor, the uh, where the lesion was, where it was m- removed, it is healed nicely. No further treatment is required at this time. Uh, but obviously we were keeping an eye on this when we saw that this was biopsied, removed and biopsied during the physical. And now we have the results. Uh, and at least at this point in time, no further treatment is necessary, but they will keep an eye on this going forward, Pamela. All right, Phil Magnanly live from the White House for us. Thank you. And turning to the world lead now today, President Biden welcomed a key U.S. ally to the White House, where he confirmed another major security package for Ukraine. The $400 million in aid includes rockets and ammunition, which Biden and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz agreed as part of their long-term commitment to Ukraine. Together we work lockstep to supply critical security assistance to Ukraine. And uh, from everything from what we've done in lockstep, we are ready also for staying with the Ukrainians as as long as it is necessary. Ukrainian forces say they are still fiercely defending the eastern city of Bakhmut, despite Russian claims that the city is surrounded. Capturing Bakhmut would give Putin's army the ability to launch aerial attacks further into Ukraine and would symbolize some military progress for the Russians. CNN's Melissa Bell is in Ukraine, where officials are worried thousands of civilians remain trapped in the city under siege. Bakhmut still stands, says the Ukrainian military, but only just. Uh, Looks uh, really hellish. The bridge along the last possible supply route in and out destroyed overnight. 
leaving out of reach and nearly encircled around 4,500 civilians, including 48 children. The ghosts of Bakhmut, entirely out of sight. Any sign of life driven underground. What is life like then in Bakhmut today for the civilians, for the soldiers? What life? What, what, what life? You know, the soldiers are doing their work, which is quite hard, and civilians are trying to survive. There is no water, there is no electricity. This was Bakhmut in August when the siege had just begun. This is Bakhmut seven months on. The city is empty. People are afraid to go out. Every day, new destruction. It's better not to go outside, writes Dr. Elena Molchanova from inside the town. CNN met her and other nurses on Christmas Eve. Not quite happier times, but certainly less desperate ones. Now the constant artillery prevents her from leaving the basement of her hospital. The Ukrainian military says civilians are now trapped. The head of the Wagner mercenary group urging Ukrainians nonetheless to try to leave Bakhmut as his men close in. The pincers are tightening. The Ukrainian soldiers are fighting, but their lives near Bakhmut are short, a day or two. Give them a chance to leave the city. It is, in fact, surrounded. Ukraine dismissing those comments as a disinformation campaign designed to spread panic. For now, Ukrainian soldiers continue to fight. Almost all the building outskirts uh, uh, ruined absolutely. Almost every house uh, has these uh, holes and have these marks of uh, shelling. The streets are empty. The picture is quite sad. But inside, life, as best it can, goes on. Elena helping those who come with what drugs are left. And she sends us this. Spring is coming, she says, even to Bakhmut. And that means there's hope. Pamela, those spring-like conditions had been expected to slow the Russian advance, the muddy and collapsed trenches, the flooded fields. In fact, the sheer number of Russian soldiers and mercenaries that have been thrown at Bakhmut uh, have meant that the city will surely fall. It's a matter of time. And in fact, the next dreaded stage has begun, which is the pounding of the next village uh, to the west, Chaziv Yar. But surely uh, that question of the fate of those four and a half thousand civilians uh, will have to be part of the calculation longer term about whether or not this seventh, seven month long fight was worth the cost, Pamela. Melissa Bell, thank you very much. And joining us now is Amanda Sloat. She is the senior director for Europe on the National Security Council. So, Amanda, we just heard about Russia's siege on Bakhmut. Uh, could you give us an honest assessment of what is actually happening on the ground in Ukraine? Does it look like Russian forces are, in fact, gaining steam? So it's hard for me here standing in Washington to give you a better assessment than what the Ukrainians featured in your interview are seeing on the ground. Uh, certainly it has been a bloody and vicious fight. Uh, the Russians have heavily invested in this for unclear reasons because it's not of particular strategic value for them. We have seen them throwing thousands of bodies at this fight, including a large number of prisoners, and it's not going to be something that's replicable for them. Uh, so from here, we're continuing to give the Ukrainians the security assistance they need, including another large package that we announced today to enable them to continue fighting effectively on the battlefield. 
What is the significance of Bakhmut and, and what kind of morale blow would it be to the Ukrainians if they lose it? The Ukrainians so far have taken back already half of the territory seized by Russia since this war began. Uh, the strategic value for Russia has never been particularly clear. I want to talk about the meeting today between President Biden and Chancellor Schultz. Uh, one administration official told CNN that they could discuss intelligence showing China is considering giving Russia lethal aid. Is that aid imminent? Sorry, I, uh, you broke up. Can you oh. repeat? Yeah, that's okay. Uh, so we have reporting that uh, Chancellor Schultz and President Biden were expected to discuss the intelligence showing China is considering giving Russia lethal aid. Is that aid imminent? So, so far we have not seen evidence that China is providing military support to Russia. It is something that we are continuing to watch. It's something that we have been very clear with China there would be consequences of. Uh, but thus far we have not seen evidence that China has made that decision and gone forward. Uh, certainly if they did, it would be very damaging to what China is trying to do, both in Europe and internationally. Has the U.S. has the administration seen any evidence or intelligence that uh, China may be reconsidering that consideration to provide lethal aid to Russia? So as we have indicated previously, we had evidence that China was considering it. Uh, but for now, we have not seen evidence that China has actually made a decision to move forward. All right. So despite being excluded from today's aid package, Ukraine's defense minister said that he is confident Western countries will, in fact, send those fighter jets to Ukraine. Is he right? What do you say to him? So uh, President Biden has spoken to the question of, of F-16s. Right now, we are focused on ensuring that Ukraine has the security assistance that it needs for prosecuting the battle on the ground. Uh, today, we announced another significant security assistance package that included large amounts of ammunition uh, and other types of equipment that the Ukrainians have been using very effectively in their fight. And, and no doubt the administration, the country has given uh, weapons that Ukraine has been asking for. But specifically as it relates to F-16s, has that definitively been taken off the table as part of any uh, future aid package to Ukraine? So President Biden has spoken pretty clearly about this in terms of, of where his view is now. Uh, we are continuing to work in lockstep with our Ukrainian partners. Uh, Chancellor Schultz here today, the president and, and Chancellor Schultz several weeks ago made an announcement about the decision to provide tanks, uh, continuing to provide security assistance, including the package that we announced around the anniversary with another package today. Uh, and what we are focused on right now is ensuring that Ukraine has the equipment that they need for the fight that they are currently engaged in. Right. And I understand what you're saying about the president saying uh, where things stand now as it relates to F-16s. So what about future aid packages? Has it been taken off the table for that as well? So I'm not going to get ahead of where the administration is and, and speak about what we might be doing in the future. Uh, but what I can say is that the announcement that we've made today, recent weeks, and will continue to do is giving the Ukrainians the capabilities that they need. All right, Amanda Sloat, thank you for your time. Thank you. Up next, the strong words from a judge as he sentenced Alec Murdoch to life in prison for the murder of his wife and son. Plus, what a juror is revealing about the deliberations that took only three hours. Plus, a party divided the uproar among Democrats after President Biden seemingly gives Congress a green light to interfere with D.C. crime laws since it's not a state.
In our national lead, life in prison, that is the new reality Alec Murdoch is facing after a South Carolina judge sentenced Murdoch to two life sentences, one for each of the murders of his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul Murdoch. CNN's Randy Kay is in Walterboro, South Carolina, where the judge delivered an emotional speech before handing down the sentence. I sentence you for the term of the rest of your natural life. Alec Murdoch convicted and given two life sentences for the murder of his wife and son. I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. All day and every night. After more than a month in the courtroom, jurors took about three hours Thursday to convict Murdoch of murder for his wife Maggie and 22-year-old son Paul, who were found fatally shot on the family's property in June 2021. I didn't see any true remorse. How did you know he wasn't crying? Because I saw his eyes. I was this close to him. Murdoch, once a prominent lawyer in the area, took the stand last week in his own emotional defense. Maintaining he found the bodies after returning from a brief visit to his mother that night, despite cell phone video placing him at the scene. Remind me of the expression you... uh gave on the witness stand? Was it, oh, what tangle web we weave? What did you mean by that? meant when I lied, I continued to lie. The defense relied heavily on Murdoch's opioid addiction to account for his deception and lies about his whereabouts, something the judge and jury didn't buy. They've concluded that you continued to lie and lie throughout your testimony. Not credible. Not believable. Despite all the circumstantial evidence against him, Murdoch maintained he was not guilty. I'm innocent. I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my wife Maggie. And I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my son Papa. And it might not have been you. It might have been the monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Still, Murdoch's defense team says they wouldn't have done anything differently. He's a liar and he's a thief, and he admitted that. He's not a murderer. We saw a relationship between Paul and Alec that just, it, it, inexplicable that he would execute his son and his wife in that fashion. No one who thought they were close to this man knew who he really was, and Your Honor, that's chilling. And Pamela, during my interview with Alec Murdoch's defense lawyers, they told me that they do plan to appeal. They have 10 days to do so. And the grounds for their appeal, they said, is the fact that all of these financial crimes were introduced in court. They expected some of them, but certainly not all of them. They believe that really turned the jury. And once that happened, they thought their best shot was really just a mistrial or a hung jury. Pamela. So is he going to face other trials in for his alleged financial crimes? Yeah, there are 99 other charges, and uh, they certainly spent a lot of time in court speaking about those. Uh, uh, The prosecutor talked through a lot of the names, and he admitted to a lot of the fraud while he was on the stand, so that certainly should help the state. But he will face trial for that, uh, and he's looking at defrauding cases of of defrauding people nearly $9 million, Pamela. Randy Kay in Walterboro, South Carolina. Thank you, Randy. Well, just outside D.C. today, big name Republicans taking the stage and some veiled attacks on Donald Trump without anyone ever saying his name. We'll be back. Topping our politics lead, Tennessee's Republican Governor Bill Lee has signed a pair of controversial new laws. 
one bans gender-affirming care for minors, despite objections from major medical organizations, including the American Medical Association, in which it called attempts to criminalize health care for transgender minors a, quote, dangerous legislative intrusion into the practice of medicine. Also, despite protests, Lee signed a law restricting drag performances in Tennessee. It prohibits specifically showing on public property or in locations where they can be viewed by minors. The drag show law is the first of its kind, but comes as part of a nationwide push by Republicans. Critics say the law unfairly paints the performances as overtly sexual and targets members of the LGBTQ community. Also in our politics lead, CPAC's annual conference is underway in National Harbor, Maryland, an event which has historically been a rite of passage for Republican presidential hopefuls. But as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, many potential 2024 candidates are skipping this year's conference. It's long been a command performance for Republicans harboring White House ambitions. It's great to be back at CPAC. But at the annual conservative political action conference outside Washington, the parade of potential presidential hopefuls is far shorter this year. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. If you're tired of losing... Put your trust in a new generation. And if you want to win, not just as a party, but as a country, then stand with me. And former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo were among those taking the stage. We shouldn't look for larger-than-life personalities, but rather we should find power in the rooms like this one. But the long-running three-day gathering called CPAC is now seen as the Trump show. These are my people. This is beautiful. The former president is set to appear Saturday, joining a sea of loyal supporters and members of his own family. Your president, President Donald Trump, will be here. Who are rallying to return him to office. But other big-name contenders, who many Republicans see as the party's future, had other plans. Last year, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took to the stage as a rising star. CPAC! But as he inches closer to declaring a presidential bid, he attended a gathering of donors in Florida, hosted by Club for Growth, an anti-tax group urging the party to move on from Trump. Several potential rivals also skipped CPAC and headed to Florida, including former Vice President Mike Pence, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, and New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. But adoration for Trump was on full display at CPAC, where Evie Phillips took a seat at a replica Resolute desk against a backdrop of a faux Oval Office. Trump first. Okay. And then DeSantis, let's do that in 28. Colleen Hoffman is from Jacksonville, Florida. She wore a DeSantis hat, even as she sported a Trump sticker. She said she's torn, but believes Trump is the stronger choice for 2024. I really love this hat because it's like, let us alone, you know, it's, I love it, but... Um, as of right now, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. Now, this gathering is always a chance for Republicans and conservatives to size up their potential field of candidates, particularly when they're trying to win back the White House. But, Pamela, this year's event is so much different, largely because it is focused on nostalgia and celebration of former President Donald Trump. Of course, he arrives here tomorrow trying to make the case that, yes, he's the past of the party, but he's also the future of the party. The question How hard will he go after some of his potential rivals to start drawing distinctions between them, particularly the Florida governor? That's what CPAC candidates want to see. All right. They will see it soon. Jeff Zeleny at CPAC in National Harbor, Maryland. Thank you. Well, many Democrats are fuming about President Biden's surprise announcement that he would sign a Republican-led bill that would block a Washington, D.C. effort to overhaul the city's criminal code. 
The president's decision comes after House Democrats rejected the GOP bill last month by a vote of 173 to 31, and after Biden previously said he'd oppose the measure. CNN's Tom Foreman is digging into what's actually in the D.C. crime law for us. So, Tom, what does this bill actually do, and why are so many lawmakers opposed? Okay, this is complicated, but let me make it simple here. D.C. wanted to rewrite its criminal code, which has been around for a long, long time. They spent a whole lot of time working on it, and they came up with an approach that was generally more progressive than punitive. Some of the measures that they're talking about there are things that would sort of lessen the uh, the mandatory minimum sentences for many crimes that you might run into out there, reduce the maximum sentences for crimes like robbery and carjacking, and expand the requirement for jury trials in most misdemeanor cases. Initially, remember, D.C. laws can be overturned at the federal level. Initially, Joe Biden indicated to the president that he would back what D.C. wanted to do. But then Republicans started making a lot of noise that said, this is soft on crime. We can't have that. And then the president seemed to do an about face. This is his latest take on what's happening here. He said, I support D.C.'s statehood and home rule, but I don't support some of the changes D.C. Council put forward over the mayor's objections, he might note, such as lowering penalties for carjackings. If the Senate votes to overturn what D.C. just did to rewrite their code, I'll sign it. And that has created an uproar among Democrats because there are Democrats out there who went out on a ledge saying, no, 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 we're with the president in opposing the Republicans. And now he's not opposing them anymore. So it seems those Democrats feel they've been made vulnerable, that they can be accused of being soft on crime. And just as importantly, Democrats for a long, long time have said D.C. deserves statehood. D.C. should be allowed to make its own decisions like other places. Some of them see this as a real violation of that, that Joe Biden can't say, I support D.C. having autonomy in theory, but in practice, when it comes to something like this, I will go against what D.C. wants. Politically, very complicated. Bottom line, this could point to some of the challenges for Democrats dealing with the issue of crime going forward. All right, Tom Foreman, thank you. Joining us now is Republican pollster and strategist Kristen Soltis-Anderson, along with Ashley Allison, former National Coalition's director for the Biden-Harris campaign. They are both CNN political commentators. Hi to you both. So, Ashley, starting with you, as you just heard there from Tommy, laid it out, many Democrats are furious at the White House for this move. It exposes those in swing states for Republican attacks about being soft on crime and to the left of Biden. One Democrat telling CNN they, quote, cannot trust the White House. Was this a misstep for the White House? Well, I think that, you know, the president can do what he wants, but I do I do believe fundamentally that this is about an issue of 700,000 people living in the District of Columbia that don't have representation in the federal government. And yet here we are, have Republican senators coming in, trying to tell them what their city code should be. And it seems counter to how Republicans often say they don't want big government. This is definitely government coming in and bigfooting a city. But I also think that where the White House might have made a misstep is that by taking the bait for Republicans about a soft 
on crime narrative. Joe Biden has made it very clear that he supports police officers, that he believes in a new vision for public safety, which he just laid out in the State of the Union, and allowing people to do criminal justice reform like the D.C. Code would be doing in this bill would be a great opportunity for the president to say, I support new ways to think about public safety. But instead of several provisions in the bill that the Republicans really doubled down on, it seems like the White House doesn't want to be on the Republicans talking points, but they should be pushing back because we cannot be playing defense about being a soft on crime par- par- a party when we really know that we all want communities that are about public safety and where people can feel safe in. Krista, what do you make of Ashley's argument saying Republicans often talk about states' rights and local control, yet GOP opposition to this D.C. crime bill seemingly flies in the face of that principle? Well, it's not just Republicans who oppose these changes. The mayor of D.C. herself does not like these changes. So this is not just a case of it's some outside voices saying one thing. It's clear that this is a big controversial issue within Washington, D.C. And frankly, it's a huge misstep for those who are advocates of criminal justice reform. D.C. is in the middle of, of rising crime, rising carjackings, rising homicides. The fact that the city council would take this moment, instead of doing things to actually reduce crime, to do things to be soft on crime, puts Democrats in a horrible position because now there are going to be Republican ads run all over the country against every single one of those Democratic House members who voted against overturning this policy, making the case that they supported softer penalties. So what in this case was probably smart politics for Joe Biden, assuming he runs for president in 2024, it winds up being really bad politics for those House Democrats. I have no doubt that Republicans are going to feel very strongly that this is a political win for them. And some of these House Democrats, Ashley, um, saw that President Biden, they thought he would initially um, support their position on it and voting against it. Clearly, that is not happening. And Biden is reiterating his support for D.C. DC statehood, despite announcing his intention to sign this bill overturning the D.C. law. And as we just heard from Kristen, it is true that D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, um, that she is against it. She vetoed it. But here's what she said about um, the, the principle at play here saying, quote, I think that we're all dealing with is the effects of a limited home rule. And we know that our legislative process is one that doesn't end with my signature or veto until we are the 51st state. We live with that indignity. So is the White House choosing politics over principle here, Ashley? Well, I think the mayor is right that the real issue is that, again, you have 700,000 people, a lot of them black and brown people who don't have representation in Congress. I also think, though, that there were 12 city council members. You know, we have a government and we have, you know, veto power and then people can override the veto. And those city council members who were also elected by the residents of D.C. overturned the veto. Now, when an election comes again, all of those individuals will be at the will of the residents in this district to decide whether or not they want to represent them. The unfortunate thing is that while we have a rep- uh, um, someone, Eleanor Norms Houghton, who sits in the House of Representatives, she does not have a vote and we don't have two senators. So I think it is hard to say that you will override what the city council and really the people of Washington, D.C. have decided to do, and but you also agree with statehood. I think you have to hold a firm line. But I also understand the political nature. My, my strong recommendation, though, is stop getting on the Republican 
talking points for Democrats to go on offense and talk about what our vision for public safety is. And I think that is a winning vision that many Americans would fall behind that would be beneficial in 2024 for the president, uh, congressional members and Senate uh, folks running and governors running uh, for that matter. Yeah. Speaking of 2024, um, we saw Nikki Haley there uh, at CPAC, you know, one of the the few actually Republican uh, presidential, well, she's announced that she's running. Others, we think, are going to be running, like Ron DeSantis. She's um, attending, but Ron DeSantis and other potential um, Republicans who want to run for president are not attending. Um, so what do you make of that? That DeSantis himself, Kristen, has chosen not to attend CPAC's annual conference. Instead, he was um, at the kickoff speaker. Uh, he was the kickoff speaker for the conservative group club for growth's event, where he was critical of other Republicans. I want to listen to what he said, and then we'll talk on the other side of it. So many Republicans get in and they're like potted plants. They're scared to do anything. What we say is we fight the woke across the board in corporations. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the bureaucracy. We never surrender to the woke mob. So clearly leaning into the culture wars. It has worked for DeSantis in Florida. Is this a potential winning strategy for him in 2024? Republican voters right now want two things. They want someone who's going to fight and they want someone who's going to win. And that's what makes Ron DeSantis so interesting to Republican voters who may like Donald Trump's message and may still think fondly of him, wish he was president, but are open to the idea of turning the page. I think DeSantis made the right move by not going down to CPAC. Uh, You know, CPAC has been, uh, as Kellyanne Conway described it in 2017, it's now TPAC. Uh, And that's true. He's won the the straw poll every year since he's been president. But also CPAC is not as determinative of who becomes the Republican nominee as I think some of the rhetoric would suggest. In 2016, it was Ted Cruz who won the straw poll. Donald Trump actually pulled out of speaking there entirely right before he won the Republican nomination. You had a bunch of wins from Ron Paul and Rand Paul and a lot of people who never wound up going on to be Republican nominees for president. So I think sometimes CPAC, it's overstated its importance in the process. It used to be a really good place to hear where lots of different pieces of the conservative movement were thinking about things, have those inside the tent debates. But now it's really a lot about Donald Trump. So I don't blame DeSantis for not going. All right, Kristen and Ashley, thank you. Well, smell of burning rubber lingering for days in a village one Israeli leader said needs to be erased. Now it is the center of conflict, and CNN is there up next. In our worldly, the village of Huwara has become ground zero in the struggle between Israeli settlers and Palestinians. And today, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights says one Israeli official is inciting violence. He is referring to comments from Israel's far-right finance minister who said this week that Huwara, quote, needs to be erased. CNN Sadas Gold goes inside the village of Huwara, where a burning smell still lingers after violence erupted this week. This is the Palestinian village Israel's far-right finance minister said needs to be erased. Huwara, where Israeli settlers tried to do just that on Sunday. Revenge attacks after the killings of two Israeli brothers by a Palestinian gunman hours before. Days later, the smell of burning rubber still lingers in the air. As residents clean up shattered glass, burnt-out cars, blackened buildings, one Palestinian man killed in the ensuing chaos. 
Hawara has long been a flashpoint for violence between Israeli settlers and Palestinians, partly due to the highway that runs through it. They usually attack us by throwing stones. If we try to defend ourselves, they will use weapons. But last time was different. Wherever you look, there are bullets fired. Fires everywhere. Security cameras outside of residents' home show masked settlers gathering flammable material to set this home on fire. The door literally melting. Ten-year-old Lamar Abusari said her room's window was broken by three big stones. Mom hid us in our room and went to the rooftop to see what's happening. We heard them breaking the windows of the house. We didn't do anything to them. Her two-year-old sister Siwar jumps when she hears a noise outside. Beep fire, she whispers. A seeming reference to the car set ablaze at her family's auto repair shop. Their mother Hannah saying her children are traumatized. They burned the cars and shot three bullets towards me and were screaming, death to Arabs, we will wipe out Huara. A few days later, that phrase, wipe out Huara, echoed by the Israeli finance minister and settler leader Betzalel Smotrich. I think the village of Hawara needs to be erased. I think that the state of Israel needs to do this, and God forbid, not private people. Smotrich later tweeting he didn't mean it and only wants to, quote, act in a targeted manner against the terrorists and supporters of terrorism. At least a dozen settlers have been arrested, according to Israeli police, and there's now a heavy military presence in town. Israeli soldiers telling our team to stop filming because it's a closed military zone. As Israeli authorities still search for the gunman who killed the two Israeli brothers and to keep Israeli settlers out of town. And Hawara has actually also sort of become a rallying cry also for those Israeli protesters who have been taking to the streets over the past eight to nine weeks to protest against the government's planned judicial overhaul. In fact, on protests on Wednesday that got a little violent, uh, protesters were shouting at the heavy police presence there, where were you in Hawara? Essentially referencing how come they were out there and forced to a protest but didn't, uh, but seemingly were not there in Hawara on Sunday to prevent this violence. And in some good news, there has been a crowdfunding campaign for the villagers in Hawara started by Israeli activists, and they have raised around $500,000. Pam. Hadass Gold, thank you. Worse than hell, bodies scattered and a war hero who braved the elements and enemy fire to save lives. The heroes welcome today for that Vietnam vet. Also in our politics lead today, President Biden awarded the Medal of Honor to retired Colonel Paris Davis for heroism while fighting in the Vietnam War. Paris was one of the first black special forces officers. He was wounded several times during a major battle, yet still managed to pull American soldiers to safety while continuing to fight. CNN's Orrin Lieberman tells his story. The early morning patrol behind enemy lines on June 18, 1965, fell apart quickly. Captain Paris Davis and his men were leading a team of inexperienced South Vietnamese when they came under waves of attack. There was a place on that battlefield. There were so many bodies you couldn't see the grass. What kept you going in that fight? Others. Uh, I'll tell you, I don't even remember the first couple of times I got shot that day. Davis was in that fight for 19 hours. The Viet Cong really had a, a good terrain just like we did. We were right across from him. 
He later recounted that battle on the Phil Donahue show, how he called in artillery fire, fought the enemy, and rescued three of his fellow soldiers, including this man, Billy Waugh. I went out there and tried to pull him out, but he was in a lot of muck, and I couldn't get him out, and he was tied up in some vines, and he got shot again, and I got hit right here on the arm. By the time Ron Dice arrived overhead in a small observation airplane, he says it looked like all hell had broken loose. Dice was shot down, then picked up the story in bits and pieces from one of his men back at camp. He told me that he thought Captain Davis should receive the Medal of Honor for the heroism that he exhibited that day. And he said this back then. He, he told me that evening. Davis did receive an award for that day, the Silver Star. But to the men who saw him in combat, it wasn't enough. 58 years later, that recognition finally happened. This, uh, Secretary, may be the most consequential day since I've been president. Paris Davis, one of the first black Special Forces officers, received the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest award for valor. He never liked being called a hero, but there is no denying it now. This year, we celebrate the 75th anniversary of our first fully integrated armed forces and name Paris Davis will still stand alongside the nation's pioneering heroes. Davis says to receive the Medal of Honor is nothing short of a dream. It's my day to say thank you to all America for allowing me to be in the military. I'm serious about it. No BS. Allow me to serve the country. You know, the country had been, the country'd been pretty damn good to me. Davis is one of only four service members in U.S. military history to have earned the Medal of Honor and the Soldier's Medal. Pam, it was an absolute privilege to be able to put together that story and to meet Colonel Paris Davis, who remained in the military for 20 years after the day for which he would earn the Medal of Honor. What an inspiration. So well-deserved. Orrin Lieberman, thank you. Well, a Florida man's smartphone helped save his life. From body cam video, you can see the man's car upside down in a canal. This was Wednesday in Martin County, north of West Palm Beach. Deputies say the driver swerved to avoid an animal. Well, he never called for help. Instead, his phone sent his coordinates to 911, and dispatchers tracked him down. Deputies were able to jump in the water and pull the man out. Rescuers took him to the hospital, and he is expected to be okay. Well, Sunday on State of the Union, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, and former Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas. That's Sunday morning at 9 Eastern and again at noon right here on CNN. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper on this Friday. Brianna Keeler is up next in the Situation Room. Have a great weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.